When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tom Bernard Show with JB, Mike Bellino, Andy Brad Bernard. I'm the Hackmaster. We're off to a bash MD. I don't know where Catherine went. She just took off. I we went up there. She's gone. We do not have sororal representation. <laughs> we don't. No sororal representation. I just can't believe it. It's a disaster. In any case, we'll be right back. Tom Bernard Show. Walzer Automotive Group started in Minnesota over 60 years ago. Most people know something about the Walzer way. Upfront, no haggle pricing, work with one person from start to finish, or the free lifetime powertrain warranty on most vehicles sold in Minnesota. What you might not know is they are the only automotive group that is a member of the Keystone Club. They join such great Minnesota companies as General Mills, Target, Cargill, the Twins, Wolves, and Vikings in pledging 5% pre-tax profits to local charities. It's a great example of their core values. Do the right thing, display positive energy, be open-minded, and lead by example. So if you're in the market for a new or used car, check out walzer.com or stop into one of their dealerships. Please don't say, tell them Tommy sent you, because it sounds fake, and I hate it. Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt then talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. It's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? uh, Either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. Tom Bernard Show. A U.S. serviceman has become the world's first man to ever receive a full penis and scrotum transplant. I'm surprised you. it's taken so long. I mean, it's not like the most complex thing in the world. No, it isn't. So I was going to ask Ralph if he had heard about this or not. No, he, but the wiener and scrotum. They'll try to put it, everything back on. But I wonder that they didn't. Do they do this? The testicles as well? Yeah, it so says it's, it's scrotum, full penis, and well, scrotum. Wait. Grow, uh, no, not the testicles. So not the testes. Well, then why even bother with what? the scrotum part? <laughs> well, that, what they'll do is they'll have that the sack there. Oh, they the can fake. put artificial. Yeah. The, oh, <laughs> turn your nose up and take a lot of guys running around with some a fake testicle or two. Yeah, and then they're you know it's, it gives you the uh, the sense of being whole. Mm, no there different you go. Than, no different than a woman having breast enlargement. Why didn't they just stick with the baby elephant trunk? <laughs> oh, that. Uh, that's a terrible story. It's a great joke. What are you talking about? <laughs> you ever heard that one, Andy? <laughs> no. 
So a guy's on his motorcycle, gets in an accident. He's in the hospital. He wakes up, and the doctor says, I got some really bad news for you, man. We had to cut off your penis and your, your testicles. We had to cut everything off. He said, but the timing might be okay because we've just learned how to transplant a baby's, baby elephant's trunk to your uh, lower region. I goes, oh, God, thank God. He goes, well, you know, it, it's shown a great deal of promise, so we'll see what happens. So the guy uh, gets the elef- baby elephant trunk in the place of his penis. A few months later, he decides it's time to go out on a first date. So he goes through Tinder or Match.com or whatever. They go out for a date. Right in the middle of the date, he can feel the baby elephant trunk unzipping his fly from the inside. (laughs) And the trunk reaches up on the table, grabs a bun, and disappears beneath the table again. And the woman goes... My God, that was unbelievable. That's really impressive. Can you do that again? The guy said, "Yeah, the only problem is I don't know if I can get another bun up my ass." <laughs> Come on! I don't know if I can take another hard roll. <laughs> take oh, another man. hard roll up the keister. But other than that, uh, per USA Today, the veteran was injured by an IED years ago while on combat tour in Afghanistan. Surgeons from the Johns Hopkins School of uh, University School of Medicine. Announced the historic news on Monday after performing the unprecedented surgery in Baltimore last month. The patient is expected to recover both urinary and sexual function. How can he without testicles? Oh, it's, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's separate, entirely separate. Yeah. Oh, it uh, is secondary, really. Yeah, that's secondary. Sex drive is driven by you know, any kind of testosterone production. Um, but you don't need, you don't need, the, the, you don't need the, uh, the uh, wedding tackle uh, complete <laughs> to uh, be sexually function. It's just the, the wedding tackle. What do you mean by <laughs> the wedding? You know what I mean. You uh, know what no I idea, mean. No idea, baby elephant yeah. trunk. <laughs> the boys down there. So they, the so, so mm-hmm. it, it, they have to have the nerve working because you have to have the sensation in the penis itself. Right. right. And so they're going to rin, and that's going to take time to regrow. Yeah. But then once you get the the arteries and veins in there, pff, that thing will just load right up when it needs to. Mm-hmm. This is unbelievable. Surgeons said they rebuilt the man's entire pelvic region over the course of 14 hours. Jesus. Per the AP, the scrotum <gasps> transplant did not include the donor's testicles, meaning reproduction won't be possible. We just felt there were too many unanswered ethical questions with yeah. that extra step. Yeah, I can see that. Said Dr. Damon Cooney. <laughs> Three other successful penis transplants have been reported, two in South Africa and one in 2016 at Massachusetts General Hospital. Those transplants involved only the penis, not extensive surrounding tissue, that made this transplant much more complex. The entire pelvic region. Yikes. The entire pelvic region. Hopkins is screening additional veterans to see if they're good candidates for this type of reconstructive transplant. The Hopkins patient received an uh, extra experimental step, an infusion of bone marrow from his donor that research suggests may help a recipient's immune system better tolerate a transplant. I'm surprised they haven't thought of that before. I mean, that's, you know, where lymphocytes come from and everything. So Yeah, but this whole thing about graft versus host disease. I mean, you put dump that in there. And I guess graft you can versus have, host and you bone marrow, have, and you're kind of dead. Yeah, so. that's that's a rough business. Yeah. So, yeah, but they're, they're trying. They're, once, as as people, as physicians, and as medicine learns how to manipulate uh, the immune system more and more, you can see mm-hmm. more and more of these things because they then they if they can manipulate it, then they can ameliorate the grass versus host disease and that sort of stuff. Well, so that's good. Yeah. There's nothing but good news here. Um, in any case, surgeons said there that it uh, is enabling the veteran to take one anti-rejection drug instead of several. Cool. That's the because the bone marrow. Yeah. In a statement from Hopkins, the patient uh, was quoted as saying, "When I first woke up, I felt I felt finally more normal." I would think you'd feel horrible after your entire pelvic region is reconstructed, but yeah. But having started out with nothing there, with any problem, man, he probably had a super pubic tube. He was, he was like, well, he probably didn't have any feeling in the region at all at first. Man, if they rebuilt his pelvis, part of his pelvis, man, that's a big deal. Oh, what a project! Fourteen hours, fourteen. That's that's a lot of surgery. That's a lot of surgery. A lot of blood. A lot of blood. Yeah, that's a messy place. Indeed. It is all true. So yeah, a lot well, of surgery is still pretty uh, yep. medieval. 
because yeah. we don't know a whole lot about uh, you know. It's the only nerves we can grow are non-peripheral None. nerves. No, the peripheral nerves can regenerate. Peripheral nerves, given the right, but still, it's very imperfect and it's not. Because sometimes uh, they'll grow yeah. into the wrong nerve, and then That's at right. that point, you're just kind of screwed. That's right. The axons can only grow in certain areas. Yeah, I'm. I don't understand why we can't just like make basically a wire that connects two nerves. Can't we just like it's make too, an artificial axon? No, too complex. Way more complex than just electrical current. Hmm. So, so. See? see, Andy, you got to go to medical school. Yeah, get when you are you going to medical school? Get you Andy. Go to medical school. You're halfway there already. Well, I mean, no. I know the electrical signal goes along the myelin sheath, but we know how to insert. Um, Stem cells that become myelin. Well, that's, that's Mike and JB and I are just going to go home. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what the hell you guys are talking about. Now, Andy, why don't you go to medical school? Mm-hmm. Too hard. There's, too hard. You already know it all. Too much work. Yeah, get off your ass and go to medical school. I'll go Dr. to nighttime Andy. medical school. Doctor Panda. That's what we'll call you. <laughs> if I had to wake up at six a.m. for a year, I'd probably die. You could go to night I'd school. Literally, just die. I don't think they have. You don't go to. You don't get up at six a.m. to medical school for residency, though. Well, that's a, that's a little yeah. bit of a crabgrass in the lawn of being a physician. Granted, but yeah, residency yeah, but is the main is reason. Well, it depends. It's a minimum of three years, up yeah. to six, to seven, eight. Well, get off your Sounds ass. Sounds pretty Let's bad. Go. You need to become a doctor. Uh, a U.S. appeals court on Monday favored humans over animals in a novel copyright lawsuit filed over a series of entertaining selfies taken by a monkey with a toothy grin. U.S. copyright law does not allow lawsuits that seek to give animals the rights to photographs of their original work. They're animals! And it's a selfie. How much could it be worth? The Ninth U.S. Circuit... Oh, it's the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Do they bring every goofy case to the Ninth? Yeah. They do. Every goofy case is at the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Copyright infringement can only be claimed on behalf of humans, the court said. Per the AP, the unanimous three-judge panel upheld a lower court ruling that dismissed the lawsuit by the people for ethical treatment of animals. Oh, it's PETA. It's PETA. Like I said, every goofy case goes to the ninth. Uh, Against a photographer whose camera was used by a crested macaque to... uh, Don't be giggling over there, JB. (laughs) Grow up, for crazy. Show some maturity. Uh, <laughs> it's where you put the emphasis when you said the word emphasis when you said the word macaque. <laughs> it is pronounced macaque. It is pronounced macaque. Unfortunately, <laughs> it is. Uh, it's spelling. Hey, it's not spelled that way. Yeah, it's M A C A Q U E. Macaque. Macaque. There you go. To take the photos in 2011, Peter's 2015 suit against David Slater sought financial control of the photographs, including a now famous selfie of the monkey grinning for the benefit of the animal named Naruto. Jeff Kerr, general counsel for PETA, said the uh, group was reviewing the opinion and had not decided yet whether it would appeal. Naruto should be considered the author and copyright owner, and he shouldn't be treated any differently from any other creator simply because he happens to be not human. I have to sneeze. What will they ever think? Thank you. What will they ever think of? It's just think of next. I mean, it's just, it's just it, the, to extend, you know, the difference between humans and animals, you know, and where do you, you just got to draw the line. It's draw the line. It's black, white. I'm sorry. Green, gray. Yeah, green, gray. Let's not go with black and white. <laughs> That's been used already. Hey, speaking of that, was some black woman arrested at Waffle House? Is that a new case now? Was there? What? It showed up on the screen, so you could could you... Uh, there was a black woman arrested at Waffle House. Well, Bring I, up, I, know page I, of, uh, I know at that same Waffle House where those It's four, the same one? No, I was going to say, oh. at, at the same one, 12 hours later, a, a baby was born. Yeah, some woman pulled up to it and gave what? birth. At the same exact one. The Why? weirdest thing in the world. Socially active Waffle House. Yeah, where really? is this place? Where is this? I don't remember. Why did they do um, Well, the, the story is up on the front page of Newser. I saw it on there. So, I don't know. Beep. Is that it? Mm Mm-hmm. An Alabama police department said Monday that three white police officers who threw a black woman onto the floor of a Waffle House during an arrest on Sunday threatened to break her arm, placed a hand on her throat, and exposed her breasts. What? 
Well, she could have just had a tube top on. I don't. I haven't seen the video. Okay, <laughs> now here's the bad news, uh, JB. <laughs> An Alabama police department said Monday that three white police officers who threw a black woman onto the floor of a Waffle House during an arrest on Sunday threatened to break her arm, placed a hand on her throat, and exposed her breasts had acted appropriately. <laughs> Jesus, what do you have to do? <laughs> the officers from the Saraland Police Department were uh, sharply criticized after a cell phone video of the confrontation was posted on Facebook with some, uh, some calling them racist and overly aggressive. The footage starts with one of the officers standing over the woman, Chikisha Clemens. I'm Chikisha Banana <laughs> and I'm here to say. It's Chik- I've never seen this C-H-I-K-E-S-I-A. The, the, Chikisha? The, Chikisha? The funniest thing happened last night. I was watching the Washington Capitals versus the Columbus Blue Jackets, and this guy scored for the Capitals, and his first name is Devante. Devante scoring <laughs> De- a goal? Devante Pelly Smith. Wait a minute, Devante scoring a goal. <laughs> it's like Devante. Hey, well, you know. And yes, he's a brother. <laughs> he is a brother. Devante right. scores. I like it. Devante scoring. Well, there's a lot of black players in, in the yeah, NHL. Yeah, there's probably now. about 35 in the league now. No, yeah. Out absolutely. of what's the total? Well, there's 30, what, 31 teams, and there's, what, 28, about 26 guys on a team. So, so. let's go 1,530. Right. So, it's, you know. What? 28 times. Uh, 2%. Yeah, 28 times 30, that's only 840. 28 times Oh, times 30? 30 teams, 28 oh, okay. players 20 per team. Players Is that what you teams. said? That what 31 is? teams. Thirty. Well, so, yeah, 860. So 860. 35 out of 860, that's not quite 1%. But, wait, no, it is, no it's, it's 4%. It's 4%, yeah. Well, look at that. Mm-hmm. See, and Devontae's leading the pack. That's no, he's not. Think. He's not one of the better, better ones, but it was just his first name stuck up to me. I'm just telling you this, by the way. I didn't bring it up at the beginning of the show. But for now, for the foreseeable future on this show or the KQ Morning Show, you cannot say the words the and twins together. Okay. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear their name. <laughs> Is it because they got swept this weekend by the worst team in baseball? By the worst team in baseball. <laughs> they got swept by the worst team in baseball. Their pitching is horrible. I mean, their pitching is just dreadful. Other than Barrios does a pretty good job, but he got shelled a little bit himself. It's so bad as driving Mike Mike to New York. Well, he's always been a Yankee fan. He's always been a turncoat. But seriously, the twin I I don't want to hear the wild. I don't want to hear although Leopold did the right thing. Yeah, he gas piped him. He gas piped him it was time. Hey, I gave you all the money in the world, paid all his players all the money in the world. I gave you nine years and you brought back nothing. Well, he, so it's time to go. Well, in the NHL, it's it's the last league where you would see this for the most part. There are a bunch of knucklehead general managers, and oh, then there's really? a bunch of good ones. And the good ones always fleece the knuckleheads. And oh, they do. Yeah, and the Wilds general manager wasn't do he wasn't a knucklehead, but he wasn't fleecing anybody either. Yeah, and that's why they just set Pat. Well, they over they overpaid Parisi and Suter too. There's well, no doubt that, about and that. They trust Wes's Devin Dumnik way too much. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. We'll be back, Tom Bernard Show. This is Tom for Flo. For the past 35 years, Flo's passion to invent a better way has created some of the finest recreational products available. Flo's Cargo Max trailer line is a perfect example of their innovation. This trailer is redefining the utility trailer industry. They start with a strong aluminum frame, and then add a thermoform polymer bed. It gives you a nearly indestructible one-piece trailer body. And since it's molded, it adds style that the trailer industry has never seen. They even beat it with a large sledgehammer at 20 below zero to prove how tough it is. Best of all, you'll never worry about dents, rust, rot, or paint. Visit their website at floeintl.com to find your local dealer and to see videos of this unique trailer, including... A video showing hockey star Ryan Suter shooting pucks at it, trying to break it. You'll quickly see how Flo has earned the reputation for quality products and offering you more for your money. Flo, a better way. It's Tom telling you how easy it's been for me to lose weight on the Nutramost weight loss plan. 
I've started up another round at the new Nutrimost Plymouth location, and those unwanted pounds are going fast. I've lost over 34 pounds. Nutrimost is so easy, and they guarantee that you'll lose 20 pounds or more in just 40 days. There's no exercise, shots, drugs, prepackaged food, and I'm never hungry. Nutrimost has helped me change my life, and I know they can help you too. Nutrimost of Plymouth is hosting a second free informational dinner. Learn how to have success losing weight just like me. Neil Sheehy, Nutrimost client and owner who played nine years in the NHL and is an agent to some of the NHL's current top players, will be at the dinner, and so will I, actually. It's Monday, April 30th, 6 p.m. at Jake City Grill in Plymouth, located around the corner from Nutramost, just off Highway 55 and 494. Space is limited. Call 763-333-7337 to register. That's 763-333-7337. Speaking of diapers, I went to Waffle House last night. <laughs> tell you, I thought the IHOP was a dump until I went into a Waffle House. Wow, they're not even trying in there. Here's something you'll never hear in a Waffle House. Nice job cleaning up. Now, if you've never been to a Waffle House, just imagine a gas station bathroom that sells waffles. <laughs> you've been to a Waffle House. I love Waffle House. You know what? I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I have never like been to a Waffle House. I don't even know. Do they even have them here? No, we no, don't. It's, it's, a, it's a southern. Uh, well, that'll be why. We've never I, been to a Waffle House. No. Really? No, how could I have been? Hey, uh, I, I hop here? Yeah, 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 I think they do. And Panacookin House. Mm. Panacookin That's something you won't see in the South. Panacookin No, you're not going to see that in the South. <laughs> no. But uh, remember Dennis Miller's joke about IHOP, International House of Pancakes. I don't know if you've noticed, you got these places called IHOP. It's International House of Pancakes. So basically, they named them that. So everyone would know these shitholes are everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why pancake houses have such a bad reputation for cleanliness. <laughs> I was told, by the way, by a chef, a very high-tone chef, don't ever order waffles in a restaurant because they cannot properly clean the griddle, the waffle griddle. Yeah, waffle griddles are very difficult They're to clean. Very hard to clean, and therefore, that's the first thing that attracts your cockroaches. Yeah. Great. That's great news. Wonderful. Well, well you think that uh, guy that shot those four or six people, his dad should be yes, held his dad, liable to. His dad gave him his guns back. Right. What are you doing? This guy was, what, he went to a pool and exposed himself to a bunch of kids. Yep. He uh, was threatened wearing. people with a gun. Threatened people with a gun. Then he killed what, four or five people? No, the threatening people was before. That yeah, was it was a separate incident. Before, yeah. So, yeah, he should have been uh, not having any guns. Well, well that's, the, that's the thing. Again, they did gun control him, but then someone gave him a gun. I know, and that's you, what they do. You can't control people giving guns to criminals. You can take a driver's license away from people, but people still drive. Yeah. I mean, here's the problem that I have. If Taylor Swift wouldn't have been stalking him... <laughs> That might have really. Did you see that? That he yeah. claimed that Taylor Swift was stalking him. That's pretty, uh, pretty um, clear-cut psychotic behavior. She's wiretapped my phone. She's been using my credit card. She's been yeah. stalking me. It's so weird how the human brain gets that way. Gets so I messed know. up. They'll just like assume that anyone. They'll take just like a random figure in their lives and assume that that figure has like great interest in them even though it's and like you know what that? do you even do all day it's all, it's not like you're a research scientist or something uh, he, he was probably exposed in some way to her and had some maybe had an attraction to her or, you know it was a, it was a transposition of feelings or whatnot or a, a, a projecting feelings on someone else who knows yeah. who knows but it, this is sort of this is one of the other things this is just another consequence of not providing good um yeah. secure mental health yep. care for yep. people. You got the homeless people and you got these wing wing nuts that are doing this sort of stuff. And naturally the parents uh didn't do a great job either, it seems. At least the dad didn't. Mm -hmm. I don't know about mom. I have you a know? feeling she wasn't super great, but Probably you never not. know. 
get them into get them into a system where they can be looked after and cared for, so they're not victimized, and so they don't hurt other people. Nope, only voluntarily. One of my means never. Yeah. One of my favorites of all time. I had a friend who's no longer with us. His first name was Perry. I don't need to tell you his last name, but he was a psychologist, sociologist, that kind of guy. And I was sitting there talking to him, and he said, "Well, hang around and schmooze until my next client gets here." So we're talking and you know having a good time. With, talking about all this, that, and the other thing. And he said, that's so weird now. It's like a half an hour. My next client should have been here half an hour ago, but I guess he's not coming, so well, may as well just go ahead and hit the road. I said, okay. So he walks over, he opens the door, and a guy's standing in the doorway in a karate pose. <laughs> I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> hey, Perry, boy, look at the time. I'd like to stick around and defend you. I mean, help. I mean... <laughs> The guy was out there for a half an hour standing in a karate pose, in a defensive karate pose, for and not moving for a half an hour. Man, poor things. I mean, poor, and, that, and, and those, things, those, those, those instances go on and on and on. I mean, how many people, you know, there used to be some guy in Chicago had a cape on, and he'd be screaming and preaching uh, the Bible in the middle of a, of a small park there on, uh, on uh, what do you call it, uh, Lakeshore, not Lakeshore Drive. Oh, Michigan Avenue? Uh, Michigan Avenue, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the human right brain by the is, water tower. Yeah, the yep. human brain is so complex. It's like if you take a random cluster of transistors out of a CPU, you never know what's going to happen to it. But you know, multiply that by however many you know billions of neurons we have. Uh, you take out some random cluster, and you know what's going to happen. Bingo. And we'd have really no idea what some random like if you picked out. A little part of the brain they could say it's like okay that's the temporal lobe but it's like you know what does this part even do and they'll have no idea which is really weird to me it's really unfortunate that that you can't interview psychiatrists and psychologists and sociologists because they can't really talk about it Mm -hmm. you can't interview them but i have i have heard stories well i mean you, you can know. interview them if they're anonymous and their patients are anonymous. I think. Yeah, that's I, if they're anonymous, you probably could. But there was a there was another friend of mine who was a psychologist, and he had a patient that kept committing these crimes, and he w- would tell them it wasn't me, I didn't do it, I didn't commit these crimes, and they kept sending them back to the same psychologist. And w- what they finally found out was he he didn't think he was doing the crimes. Because he thought, and he really thought, 100% true, he said, I do not commit those crimes. My body does, but I don't. Mm-hmm. And they said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, there was a snake living in his stomach, and the snake would rise up through his throat into his brain and commit crimes, and then it would recede back into his stomach. And nowadays we call that dissociative identity disorder. Holy God. He actually <laughs> believed that was true, though. Yeah. That a snake would go up into his head and may, cause his body to commit crimes that he didn't want to commit. So how do you take care? You see, that's a, that's a terribly tragic story. So so sad. Yep. And how do you, uh, where do you start with that? Yeah, I it's mean, like the guy's a victim, but he's also a danger. So yeah, it's not like you can just let him roam free in society because he had a bad lot in life. I mean, it's like you know, it sucks. But if you're dangerous, you have to be separated. Yep. That's just how it is. Yeah, you do. That is unfortunate. Speaking of um, involuntary action, uh, and this plays into the fact that dissociative identity disorder, a.k.a. multiple personality disorder, is, you know, a real thing. So there's a treatment for epilepsy, very severe epilepsy, where they basically just cut your brain in half, and that takes care of the seizures for whatever reason. Well, I suppose it because the seizure would only be limited to the half of the brain that it starts in. So it can't cross over to the other one. But one of the side effects is for someone who's done that before, they'll put them in a room with one monitor that only their left eye can see and one only their right eye can see. And they'll show something on the right um, and say, tell me what you see. And they'll say, I can't tell you what I see. I don't see anything. But then they'll say could you draw what you think is on the monitor? And they can draw what's on the monitor, but they can't. They don't know what's on there because they can't see it. But they can draw it? Yep. Yeah. So because it, half of your brain oh, is sep- it uh, 
processes like the kind of visual uh, stuff like that, but the other half processes language, so there's no communication. So you can see it, but you can't say what it is, but you still have that mental image in your head. Yeah, you're not, you're, you're not visually seeing it, but it's being processed as some sort of a, uh, a, a graphic image, so you can draw it. Very, a, very yeah. bizarre. Yeah, well, that's... depressing uh, as hell. Yeah, that's the frontal lobe- lobotomy, where you just cut the corpus callosum between the yep. two. What was that guy's hemispheres. name again? Dr. Walter... That's something different. The corpus callosotomy is like it's still a thing that they do. Yeah, but that's, it's rare, but you well, know. that's what they do when you say you're dividing the brain. That's what you're doing. Yeah, that's the communication. But you're thinking of the the uh, ice pick lobotomy the guy. The ice pick lobotomy. It's a bit guy. different. His name Dr. Walter Clemens or something like that. Yeah, they don't. Uh, the hell was his name man. again? I don't think they do those anymore. Take an ice pick and just hammer it in there with a little hammer, right, right in there. Boom. Um, that felt good. I bet. Up underneath, up, up above the eye. Antonio yeah. Moniz. No, that's not the guy. Well, I guess it is. No, it's not. Actually, I, I, I would hope he did this under like anesthesia. No, mm. no, no I'm no. talking about with um, like when they go to inject my uh, ankle. Sterily. Yeah. It's kind of hard. No, I'm talking about, but they um, like numb it. Im- imaging. No, there's oh, no, no, there's no, no. This was in the 40s. Oh, okay. Yeah, this no imaging. The... They would literally just go into the brain, destroy, you know, yeah. however much they felt like, and go. Well, let's hope this works. Yeah, that was um, in... James Watts was oh. a neurosurgeon who uh, was partnered with a guy named Walter Freeman. Walter Freeman. That's who I was thinking of. Uh, they became. Yep. They're the ones who spread the lobotomy to America. Yes. I think. Walter Freeman. Uh, yep. And then Rosemary Kennedy kind of put a, the kibosh on that procedure. Yeah, they did because it, the Kennedy family didn't want... The old man, Joe Kennedy, didn't want to deal with her because she was a handful, so we had her lobotomized. And, yeah, then she went... What a great yeah. family. Yep. What a barn burner of a family they are. No question about it. All these politicians are all my favorites. First hour we talked about now the new regime is jacking up the price of everything because of the new tax uh, bill, and now this this hour we're talking about some other different other politicians that turned on their own family. But other than that, they're really good people, all of them. Former President George H. W. Bush has been hospitalized in Houston with an infection just after attending the funeral of his wife Barbara. A spokesman said on Monday. Jim McGraw said on Twitter that the 93-year-old Bush is responding to treatments and appears to be recovering. He was admitted Sunday morning to Houston Methodist Hospital after an infection spread to his blood, McGraw said. McGraw wouldn't elaborate Monday night on the specifics of Bush's condition, saying additional updates would be issued as events warrant. But he said the 41st president was eager to get well so he can get to his summer home in Kennebunkport, Maine. I kind of doubt it. He's the most goal-oriented person on this planet, McGraw said. If your wife dies and then you get really, really ill, that usually means you've given up on life. It does, doesn't it? Dying of a it broken heart. It happens a lot, yeah. I'm curious to say they call it dying of a broken heart. Yep. And I Wait. can imagine, you know, you're married to the same woman for, has to have been 73 what? years. Yeah, 73 years. She's gone. That's a pretty big life change. My parents were married 50, almost 59, and we had to keep close watch of my mother yeah the, oh, the yeah. yeah because yeah. she had stopped eating and really mm-hmm. taking care yep. of herself and it's true first lady melania trump who attended barbara bush's funeral sent her best wishes to the former president monday evening sending healing thoughts of strength along with prayers for george president george hw bush tonight melania trump tweeted barbara bush was laid to rest on saturday in a ceremony also attended by former presidents Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and their wives. She was not. Where the hell was Jimmy Carter? Is he yeah. dead? No, oh, no. Jimmy. Jimmy's Jimmy. only about ninety-six, isn't he? Yeah. Oh well, then. Uh, I saw a photo of him and his wife. He's yeah, ninety. Not, he's only ninety-three. He's only nine. Oh, he's only ninety-three. But Never mind that. He does live in a nursing home, so. Oh, Jimmy does. Yep. Oh, I didn't know Jimmy was in a nursing home now. Uh, well, wait. It's hard to say. There's so yeah, much stuff true. on a president's Wikipedia page. It's like, who can tell what's outdated or not? Yeah. Is that like a, so that would be like Trump's presidential library? <laughs> be a Wikipedia yeah. page? Wikipedia Probably. page. It's going to be digital page. anyway. That's it's terrible. It's interesting because we actually had a dog who had the same thing. She uh, lived in the same kennel as a male dog. She was a 
What do you call him? Collie. Collie, yeah. And he was an uh, Irish setter. Irish setter, yep. And the Irish setter died, and the Collie just ran into the woods and died. Yep. Ran because she was just so eating. sad that her you know, friend yep. was gone. It's, it's interesting that even a dog has that reaction. It's true. They do indeed. But hopefully uh, President, uh, former President George H.W. Bush will recover, although he's oh. 93 years old. Look so. at that. Those hospitalizations were not publicly disclosed. I think Dad got sick on purpose so they could be with her, Jeb Bush said. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. That Dad's kind of given up. Is that what he's yeah. indicating? Well, I'm, I mean, you know, 93 is a pretty good run, yeah, I must say. 92.5. I, I had to call my siblings and say, you know, she's given up. You guys have got to yeah. get her to want to stick around. Or I understand. She's gonna, no, you're absolutely Happy right. Happy days are here again. No doubt about it. We will be right back in a couple of seconds. We have a very special guest, Joe Hagan. Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone Magazine. We'll be back with Joe in just a couple of minutes. Tom Bernard Show. I'm here with my real estate agent, Chris Lindahl. And after seeing what he did for me, I asked if he had something that would help our listeners. Chris, what do you got? We have something very special for KQ listeners. April 16th through the 18th, the Chris Lindahl team is hosting our SellerWorkshop.com series, where we're going to teach you how to net between thirty dollars to $60,000 more on your home sale. And the best part is it's absolutely free. So that sounds great, Chris, but what's the catch? Tom, here's what I'll share with you. The number one core value at the Chris Lindahl team is to be generous. I have a teaching degree, and this is my passion to educate homeowners in the Twin Cities on how to sell your house the right way so you don't end up leaving tens of thousands of dollars on the table going through the traditional real estate process. So go to SellerWorkshop.com for times and locations and to sign up for your free ticket. The Seller Workshops are happening April 16th through the 18th. Seating is limited, and trust me, they sell out fast. Visit SellerWorkshop.com or call 763-401-SOLD. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. When you call Sabre for service, you'll get a certified technician that's an expert at diagnosing, repairing, and installing heating and air conditioning equipment. Sabre Techs give you the service you need, not the other stuff that you don't need. When you combine that with Sabre's A rating for customer service and the best equipment from Bryant, you get exactly what you need. So make the call to Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning today. Sabre and Bryant, whatever it takes. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back. Tom Bernard Show, our very special guest, Joe Hagan. How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am doing very, very well. I uh, I just have been reading some of the comments on the back cover of your book, Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone Magazine. And I just saw what Paul McCartney said. Jan is yeah. very good friends with Bono, but you can see it. I think it's a little bit obvious. When I saw that, I thought, they're going to get a great review, whether it's great or not. <laughs> That's fantastic. There you have it. There you have it. God, you got everybody, everybody's uh, quote on this one. Uh, Winter thinks like a water moccasin. Uh, uh, Hunter S. Thompson, what a fucking editor. He's crazy. But he's got a dream. So I can't really tell, Joe, did people like Jan Wenner or not? <laughs> I, can't, I well, can't tell. It's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag out there. Um, you know, he. Uh, the question is, does he care? Yeah, um, right. But, you know, but he did at one time, let's just put it that way. You know, he, the story is a, of an incredibly ambitious kid in San Francisco who invents Rolling Stone and recognizes that rock and roll is going to be a giant cultural force and legitimizes it and then uses the magazine to kind of like social climb through the culture for like 50 years, you know, and meets and transacts everybody you can imagine from the Beatles, to the Stones, to you know, Jimmy Carter, to uh, Hunter Thompson, you name it, all, all these amazing galaxy of characters who uh, helped make the culture what it is. 
It is. What year did uh, did Jan Winter start Rolling Stone magazine? In which year? It was November of '67. So that so era. It's 50 years old as we speak, and um, you know, if we were 50 years ago now, I'm trying to think what would have been. I can even remember what was on the cover. It might have been a Beatles cover um, this time in '68. So um, yeah, and you know, he kept a magazine going for 50 years, which is a big tall order uh, in this culture for something to hang on that long. What's amazing to me about that, because I, uh, the reference I always make is I was 11 years old when John Kennedy was assassinated. So I'm part of that rock and roll generation. And watching how a form of music changed the world completely, and it did. This is what, people said this many, oh, that changed the world, this changed the world. Rock and roll music absolutely changed the world because, first of all, it, it's music that crossed over racially, and not much of that had been done before. But at a point I, I, I always bring up to, I, I was just talking to John Lodge from uh, the Moody Blues yesterday, and we were talking about when, when the Beatles kicked off the British invasion, as they called it, they changed the the economy of Western Europe completely. Western Europe was still yeah. suffering mightily from World War II because it was pretty much destroyed. And the Beatles going out and bringing all of that money back and, and, and the British invasion when all of them went out around the world, whether it's the Rolling Stones or Herman's Hermits or whomever, yeah. all of that money came back to England. It changed the world forever. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was... As uh, Tom Wolfe uh, once told Rolling Stone magazine, and this quote in my book, it was the first time in the history of man that young people had money. Right. And, right. Yeah, and it changed. That rock and roll was the first expression of their kind of, you know, the spirit of their age and what they were going to be about. With it. It's like uh, the freedom and the the freedom to take over the world in the way they wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. I would tell you this though, Joe. When I as I got older. I was 16, and I thought, oh, man. You know, the, the era you're talking about when Rolling Stone magazine started, I had just, uh, I was 15, 16 years old. And and I remember seeing my first hippies and this, that, and the other thing. And uh, as time went on over the next couple of years, 1967, 68, 69, I realized, you know, these hippies are all drug dealers. What's that all about? Yeah. Well, it's funny because one of the things that I think surprised me, I guess it shouldn't have, but was, you know, yes, I knew people were doing drugs, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but how profound drugs were and central they were to the culture that Rolling Stone documented and drove. I mean, uh, and you really see that in the book. A lot, you know, some people in the reviews complained about uh, there's too many drugs in this book but well that's how it was you know no you're 100 percent right we're doing a lot there are not too many drugs in the book it's how it really was uh when you look at at that era again how music had changed in the 60s the fact that all of our heroes were being gunned down whether it be john f kennedy or martin luther king jr or you go on and on bobby kennedy and and several people, there was a lot of anger, a lot of death. As a matter of fact, right now, the anger in America reminds me of uh, the mid-60s and the late-60s because everybody was very, very angry at one another, and if you didn't agree with me, you were my enemy. But what happened was Rolling Stone magazine was uh, the Harvard Lampoon because of Doug Kinney and Henry. It became the National Lampoon. Uh, then Lauren Michael stepped up and kind of took their idea and brought it to television. Saturday Night Live started up a couple of years later. I mean, it that era, and I guess the magazines, because people were picking up magazines back then, whether it be the National Lampoon or, or Rolling Stone or whatever, it did change everything. I mean, I, yeah. I remember going from... from uh, issue to issue, just waiting to see the next Rolling Stone or waiting to see the next National Lampoon and the ideas that they would would have come up with, uh, it changed everything in that one period. Well, listen, Rolling Stone was like a uh, kind of like bi-weekly chronicle of the the rock and roll generation kind of um, formulating its worldview 
you know, and then you get to watch that worldview slowly take over the world in real time. I mean, if you read my book, you get up to the Carter, uh, Jimmy Carter um, running against Ford in 76. Mm -hmm. uh, Rolling Stone was right in the middle of that election. Yeah. You know, they, they helped throw the uh, campaign um, party uh, at the convention in New York City in, in the summer of 76. I mean, they were very integral and part of it, and it's because Jimmy Carter smartly wanted to tap the youth vote, right? And so Jan turned Rolling Stone into kind of a youth lobby uh, that was supporting, you know, at the time, Democratic candidates. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that same year, he sends John Dean, famously of the Watergate um, scandal, to go cover the Republican National Convention. I mean, it was like he was really at the center of things, and um, right. that was exciting because if you were whatever age you were, you're interested in, you know, Led Zeppelin or whatever, but you can also get this. You know, it's like you're it's bigger than just rock. Yeah, it was. It absolutely was. It was worldwide. It wasn't just the United States. I mean, there was a lot of focus in the United States, but it was worldwide. Uh, what fascinates me about the whole story, going all the way back uh, to, I guess, 1963, I suppose, is when, when uh, the British invasion really started. The Beatles, at least. I think they Ed Sullivan in 1964. Is that? I think that's correct. Yeah, yeah right. But... When I look back, Nirvana is probably the last iteration of what rock and roll became, and not a whole lot new has happened since Nirvana. And I'm wondering, with the political attitudes that exist now in America, that I, I will tell you, Joe, I, I, I do a morning show as well as this show, and I, I try to, I'm pretty centrist in my thinking. But people on the far right think that I'm the devil, and people on the far left think I'm uh, Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> it's just really weird. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. odd that they have to, because you know the show is, is pretty popular and all that. Thank you know, you know whatever the situation is there. But will there be a new form of music that will express all of this anger the way it did in the 1960s and then carry on from there? Will music change because of this, or or can it change? Or some, is something else going to have to happen? Well, I don't think music is the vehicle for, you know, the youth expression of politics anymore. Right. I mean, the, th the thing that was unique about that era was it was the music, yes, but it was also the the medium, you know, the mediums were the message too. Yep. You only had a handful of magazines, four or five record labels, three newspapers, and three TV stations. This is a narrow kind of band within which everybody received the culture. Yeah, right. why? And now you have this infinite kind of like leveled field of the internet in which everything there's a million subcultures. Everybody can mm. talk, and it's uh, you know the Facebook and Twitter and these things. They are the new forms of expression because everybody can just talk right at everybody else. Yeah, and why? In some ways, everybody, it's all diminished, right? It's, none of it is as powerful as it once was. So there's no concentrated kind of like art form that is, uh, you know, connecting people that way anymore. And rock and roll certainly has lost its traction a long time ago, you know. So uh, it's a new world and there are new kinds of ways that people are connecting, but it's difficult to even compare. It's apples and oranges in so many ways. It is absolutely. You know, Joe, it's interesting. Whenever I get involved in, a, in an interview like this, I also look at the clock and I go, wait, I have to, we have to talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 2018 as well. Time flies uh, <laughs> in certain interviews, but I, uh, I'm suffering through the uh, 2018 Hall of Fame uh, inductions because yeah. the producer of my show, in my morning show, is John Lastman, the guy who uh, John Bon Jovi thanked for discovering him at WAPP in New York. So I've had to put up oh, with, wow. with that for about a week now. It's like, oh, my God, I'm never going to hear the end of it. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those deals. What did you think about the induction? Uh, well, I, I was kind of um, fascinated with it for a couple of reasons. One, uh, you know, in my book, Jan Wenner says that he doesn't think Bon Jovi, you know, was worthy mm -hmm. of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and didn't right. think that he meant anything to rock history. And, of course, this created a big furor. As everybody knows, Bon Jovi, he outed 
Jan as the one who had, was keeping him out of the Rolling Stone. I mean, I'm sorry, out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And so these guys had a tiff going on. And so for him to finally get in was, for some people, a sign that, you know, we're, that Jan Wenner doesn't have the influence that he once did. And I think that's true. Yeah, I think probably. the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is go- undergoing some transformation now and has to kind of reconsider uh, what it's about, who should be in. And they've tried to diversify their nominating committee. You know, um, and so there's been some alterations there. Then you had Nina Simone. Yeah. Uh, coming in, who's not really rock and roll, although you could say that her rebel spirit is very rock and roll. But she, you know, last year Public Enemy uh, was inducted, so they're they're having to broaden out what they mean, what the definition of rock and roll is, and uh, it's probably necessary because they got too conservative and narrow for so long that they I think did. you know it wasn't as interesting to people. Why and do you they're think they're having to reinvent themselves a little bit for a post Jan Winter? Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> Why do you think it took the Moody Blues so long to get into the Hall of Fame? Well, they're definitely a sort of one of these groups that Jan and Rolling Stone and the critical apparatus probably didn't like. Yeah. And the, yeah. the nominating committee was very much reflecting Jan Winner's worldview. You had John Landau and Dave Marsh and these sort of um, Rolling Stone, ex-Rolling Stone rock critics who were doing the nominating. They all thought very much alike in many ways. You had, you know, Robbie Robertson. It's like a little bit of a, a little mafia, you know? Yeah. And they had their way of looking at it, and the Moody, Moody, uh, sorry, the Moody Blues didn't, um, you know, fit into the inner circle of what they thought was the best. And, uh, I think after a while, though, you know, they run out of people to induct well, in the rock and roll category, yeah. especially yeah. from the 60s and 70s. And it's probably has something, you know, in some cases, you learn in my book, there's actually personal beefs that went on between some of these people. Sure. In the case of the Moody Blues, I just think they were there was a bias against them from the critical uh, world of, that comes out of Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And, and I think I think that's just how the world is. I, I had talked about you know people's view of me personally in this moment. People just have their biases, and they don't want to hear anything uh, different. It's just how it is. So things take a while. Yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, yes. the 2018 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you're talking Bon Jovi, The Cars, Dire Straits, Moody Blues, Nina Simone. And we want to thank Joe Hagan, our special guest, Sticky Fingers. If you have not read the book, you need to read the book, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine. All of these people did change the world, whether you wanted them to or not. They just did. Joe, thanks for your time today, sir. Great talking to you. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Joe Hagan. H-A-G-A-N. We'll be back. Tom Bernard Show.